Geopolitics and Empire is joined by author, blogger, and journalist Ian Davis of iandavis.com. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Ian. Hi there, Jay. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, you know, you do uh, awesome work, and I, I would like to get maybe to start your overall big picture take of what's going on in the world. I often ask my guests to re-summarize their positions regarding what's going on in the world, even though I and some listeners may be aware of them, because I think our positions are continually updated as time goes by and new developments uh, force us sometimes to recalibrate our understanding of events. And there are going to be many in the audience uh, listening to Ian Davis for the first uh, time. And I'm of the view that the end game of, of all of this stuff that we've been talking about is world government uh, and that multiple pretexts are being used to bring in this global governance from the concocted international terror threat to the manufactured climate threat uh, and COVID-1984, which I see as a planned uh, event to bring about the Great Reset, you know, all of those pandemic uh, simulations that we've been having. And the purpose is to install basically a digital technocracy and social credit system or algorithm ghetto into every single nation uh, on the planet. And so I see all of that moving ahead quickly. So that's sort of my uh, quick take. What's your view uh, of what is transpi transpiring right now uh, globally? Oh, yeah, I think we're going through a transition process. I think that transition process was planned many years ago. I mean, we can go back many decades to look at some of the uh, the ideas that were coming out of the think tanks that spawned the kind of political agenda that has been now evolved into policies that we're seeing particularly with regard to things like sustainable development goals and so forth, which are part of um, moving us towards the system that you describe, a technocratic system. Um, I think uh, probably since about 2008 with the financial crash, there's been an added sense of urgency, which is notable in some of the statements of the people that who we might say pull the, pull the strings behind the scenes. We might identify people like uh, Ben Bernanke and, and people like uh, Augustin Carstens and people like that from the Bank of International Settlement. Um, and in particular, um, we might talk about uh, the former Bank of England and now UN uh, envoy for um, climate change, Mark Carney. People like that, if we look at their statements, then we can start to piece together where this is heading. And I very much agree with you that it's heading towards a system of global technocratic control, which I would say is based upon the idea of governance. And I do draw a slight distinction between governance and government. Um, and the, the, the purpose of that is to install uh, a control system that is based upon what the philosopher Giorgio Gammon described as the biosecurity state, which is a, a mechanism for controlling our behavior. And I think behavioural control is a very big part of, of the transition period that we're going through. Ultimately, the idea, the I think the ultimate objective is to introduce a new international monetary and financial system. I think the um, the everything from COVID to the current war that we're seeing in Ukraine um, uh, is part of that transition process. I don't consider national governments to be necessarily uh, in charge or heading or leading that process. I think there are very powerful institutions and financial institutions in particular, and also intergovernmental institutions 
and organisations that have um, an important role in forming the agenda to move us towards, as I said, and, and I agree with you on this, uh, a technocracy with biosecurity at its heart, aiming at a transition of the global international of the international financial and monetary system. A message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again. Financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving on insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. Since 2020, Ron Unz of Unz.com has argued the COVID outbreak was due to a U.S. biowarfare attack against China and Iran. Jeffrey Sachs, the Russian Ministry of Defense, and others are now making similar suggestions. Weeks before COVID appeared in Wuhan, a top U.S. biowarfare official ran the Crimson Contagion exercise on how to protect America against infection if a dangerous virus suddenly appeared in China. After COVID appeared in Wuhan, it jumped to Iran, infecting Iranian leadership only weeks after America had assassinated Iran's military commander. Iran publicly accused America of an illegal biowarfare attack and filed a complaint with the UN. Ron Unz has produced a free ebook and is available for interviews to further discuss this issue. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, accept on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. I wanted to touch on the multipolar uh, part, uh, get your uh, opinion there. You know, I, I'm generally in agreement with you on that matter, although I, I do still leave a tiny bit of leeway for some X factor where you know, maybe a Putin or some other actor whips out a black swan or goes uh, JFK. But uh, generally, I view all states and state actors as mafias, basically, at this point, who generally believe in globalism, or as you said, institutions which basically control these states, and they believe in supranationalism, in world government. And one of the keys uh, for me in, in figuring this out is their positions on regionalism. You know, many people might think, uh, I'm also a Mexican citizen, uh, the president of uh, Mexico, uh, AMLO, seems to be anti-globalist, but he's recently proposed a North American Union based on the globalist EU structure. Uh, Putin out in Russia and Nazarbayev are proponents of a Eurasian Union, which is, uh, you know, also globalist. And these are sort of like the puzzle pieces to put together a true world world federation and world uh, government. And, uh, you know, you can't have a world federation or government without integrating infrastructure across the board, such as the Belt and Road uh, is doing and many other projects. And I thought I would just mention author Richard Poe. He's been a guest of mine. He recently posted a quote from a book from a book he wrote in 2004. He said, how did China catch up so fast? We sold them all the technology they needed or handed it over for free. As a globalist, Clinton promotes multipolarity. The doctrine that no country, such as the U.S., should be allowed to gain decisive advantage over others. So that's sort of my uh, spiel. What's your assessment of you know whether there are multiple camps uh, where some are resisting the World Economic Forum, uh, or whether they're merely fighting for a better seat uh, at the table? I don't think that the World Economic Forum is the the, the top of the table, uh, as you as it were. I think the World Economic Forum during certainly came to the fore during the what I've described as the pseudo pandemic, um, as a kind of almost like a kind of PR sales team for the for the you know 
to push forward this agenda of um, transition and movement towards a new and something that I know that the the World Economic Forum have spoken about in quite some detail about the multipolar world order and the need for multipolarity and how it be the foundation of a new global kind of compact. Um, and you know, I mean, and again, we can look at so, for example, we can look at the uh, speech of uh, what Mark Carney said at Jackson Hole Symposium at G7 Bankers Meeting in 2019 a few months before the um, pseudo pandemic was declared, um, where he said that, you know, if we're hoping to move to the multipolar world order with a new global reserve currency and that there is a sense of urgency and this needs to be achieved too sweet because I think it was evident, as I said earlier, that since about 2008, the debt-based monetary system, global debt-based monetary system, was on its last legs. Quantitative easing can only stretch so far, um, you know, and when it comes to the point where where there is no, as Mark Carney and Ben Bernanke and others agreed at the time, there is no wriggle room left, um, then something's got to change. And when it's the basis of their power structure, as I argue that is the, the, the basis, the source of their power and authority. And I'm not saying Mark Carney is like king of the world or anything like that. I'm, I'm saying that he represents a group of people and a body of people who have something that I've written about sovereignty over and above nation states. Um, and, you know, I, I have described that as a global public-private partnership and I think we can go back to, uh, the, I think it was 2009, um, then Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, announced that there had been uh, what he called a quiet revolution at the United Nations. Um, and he was putting forward the idea that the, the activities of the United Nations is no longer the activity of just government, but rather of government and business. So it's a, it's a fusion of, of the political state, if you like, and the corporate state, which you could argue is a form of fascism. That's what fundamentally the, 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 the um, model of fascism, that, as described by Mussolini. Um, but um, I can under, I equally, I can understand why people would put their faith in the nation state as a bulwark against globalism. It seems to be the last kind of uh, bastion against total global hegemony. But I would also point out that we are in the position that we are in at the moment in the West, for example, because of the Westphalian model of the nation state. That's what's brought us to this point, because the nation state itself is the centralization of power and authority over people. So you are enabling people, you know, the people that lead those nations, nominally lead those nation states to form ever tighter circles and further centralised power and authority. And that is, you know, embodied by perhaps something like the United Nations. So the act, so the idea of a multipolar world order and the idea of it being a collective of nation states, I don't see that as any particular defence against globalism. If we look at what's happening in places, particularly in China, for example, they seem to be quite a long way ahead in terms of in terms of 
certainly in terms of technocracy and certainly in terms of developing things like central bank digital currency. So, again, you know, if, if the idea is that the nation state of perhaps China or perhaps Russia is some bulwark against globalism, I don't see that. Yeah, I would agree. I don't see that uh, either. And you wrote an uh, interesting piece, which uh, I think irritated uh, many people on the Putin uh, false flag. And that's something that I looked into a decade ago, well before these conversations people are having. Now I, I've read, but I mean, I've, just like I believe we had the American false flag of 9-11, we've had the Russian false flag of the 1999 Moscow apartment bombings and i just look at that objectively no emotions and it's like you you look at it it's clear there that was russian state terror 9-11 was american state terror many countries have carried out probably m most you know turkey israel uh we have a, the uh, operation gladio nato false flags and so on and on you know the the japanese uh in in, in the world war to rome and so it's nothing new and yeah that that's just further confirmation i think as you point out that you know, all of these, these state actors are not much um, different from each other. And, uh, you know, if, if you have any thought on that and as well, um, you know, the idea of a third world war, you know, they're, they're hyping up this threat of, of World War Three and, and what's going on in Ukraine and get your thoughts there. Uh, also, Taiwan, uh, they're talking about where, um, you know, I, I do see I, I do think elites would take us to World War Three. It, it would very much serve their uh, purposes as well as we've seen in the past world wars and just sort of your take on wh whether you think that if they're just trying to sc scare us now uh, into submitting uh, or if whether that you know it would also serve their purposes to, to take us to a real military conflict yeah i mean i think as i talked about i mean i spoke about what i you know, earlier i mentioned the something that i've called the global public private partnership which is a network of interests, shared interests at times, but not always. You know, you, you mentioned about the, the idea of people jockeying for position and people vying for supremacy within a, within a globalist system, for, for want of a better expression, a globalist system. So well, I think there is evidence of tensions there. For example, I mean, we can see that there have been some tensions between the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization. There seem to be some tensions there around Bill's alternative offer of a of a global germ, whatever it was that he was he was pitching for. But um, you know, so so these tensions exist, and I think that's normal. I mean, I, I think one of the things that we that we often fall into the trap with when we're talking about quote unquote elites, which I I refer to as the parasite class, because they don't they don't deliver anything of any benefit as far as I can see. Uh, and they they amass their fortunes and they they wield their power and authority over us at our expense. So, um, but they're just normal people, you know. They're just they're just they're not they're not. I think the whole point is they're not special. They're not particularly unusually gifted or incredibly incredibly articulate or any or any of those things. It's just that they happen to be and have manoeuvred themselves. I mean, they might have. You know, I, I'm sure that there, are, as a group of people, you could probably find a, a greater degree of cunning among them than you perhaps would amongst any other group of people. But that's not necessarily not necessarily the case either. 
So they're just ordinary people that make mistakes, they have arguments, they fight with each other, and they and they cause mayhem in the process because, as um, you know, one of the problems is, is that they are able to shift billions of dollars, they're able to move armies, they're able to change geopolitical structures. So when they quarrel, it can be very worrying for the rest of us that at the same time you know there are genuine political tensions and geopolitical tensions between countries sometimes so for example if we look at the situation in ukraine you know there, there is clearly some uh justification pretend you know you could argue that there is some justification for russia's special military operation equally you could say that perhaps russia could have done a lot more in the previous eight years to avoid that, just as undoubtedly NATO and the, you know, and the EU and NATO aligned states could have done a lot more to avoid it. So there seemed to be some willingness on both sides of the equation to end up in a conflict. So then you need to think, well, if, if that is possible, is there whose benefit does it serve? Well, if we look at look at whose benefit it's currently serving certainly the sanctions appear to be uh fundamentally serving those who would like to impose or you know a, a, an austere form of technocracy upon western populations uh, it it's arguable that what we're seeing with the san the sanctions appear to be aimed against us rather than aimed against russia russia itself is is coping with the sanctions quite well is certainly developing new markets very rapidly. Um, but also at the same time, obviously the sanctions are going to have an economic economic impact on the on Russia as well. So it's not as if it's, you know, it's 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 not like it's just as simple as them getting a helping hand, but but you could argue that in forming a closer alliance with, for example, the other BRICS nations and moving towards the idea of perhaps a new basket of international currencies, which might be the basis of a, a new kind of special drawing right, then, then there is an advantage to the war from the Russian perspective for that reason, as well as any strategic value that it has. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I'm wondering if you would agree with me over the past two years, my biggest concern has been um, this cashless society, as you mentioned, CBDC. Uh, I, I view Bitcoin and, and crypto, you know, my view is j just that it, it's a globalist sort of Trojan horse that um, I think it came from the elites sort of to whet our appetites towards this idea of a central bank digital currency and, and cashless system. And, uh, you know, this was this will the, the vaccine passports basically are the digital id are the social credit system and every country now is attempting to install these uh systems they're advancing rapidly uh, i'm watching it closely uh in mexico where i live uh and, and in other countries and this is my biggest concern i i view it as the primary threat because if this gets installed we're completely screwed like they can just shut everything off for the individual citizen uh um and it's game over. You can't buy food. You can't work. You can't travel. You can't do uh, anything. And I think it's a worse threat than world war. I mean, you can always move geographically to another location if there's a war. But if every single country installs these systems, we're screwed. And sort of what, what's your take on, on that and how you see them uh, advancing? 
Yeah, and I, I made a, just a brief comment the other day where I, I just said that, in my view, CBDC is the end game. But, but what, I, what I meant by that was I think when we get to the stage where CBDC is acceptable, because I don't think CBDC is acceptable either to a large proportion of the business and the banking community at the moment, especially the private, you know, the, 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 the perhaps some of the smaller private sector banks are um, not so amenable to the idea because potentially it could cut them out of the usury system that they currently benefit from. Um, but I know that the model that is being pursued is still maintaining what John White has referred to as the split monetary circuit, the idea that you have uh, a base uh, currency. So you would have, I think, I can't remember what the model of the CBDC, they're calling it the, um, you have the commercial CBDC and the other, and I can't remember the term that they're giving it for the, the idea of central bank B, uh, CBDC. But the idea is that you still essentially have this, this transfer of wealth between these two separate circuits, which is very similar to the usury model that we've got now. So it's not necessarily a, um, uh, a change in that model. And that model might be more appealing to the commercial high street banks who are, you know, then would still be able to make their coin as they do at the moment. Um, and create and create money as they do at the moment. Um, but I I said that CBDC was the end game because um, in order to get to that point, there are a number of things that have to happen first in order for us to accept that that um, that CBDC. And that and that is, I think, ultimately that will entail a significant global economic collapse. So. At the point that that happens, then obviously we're looking at the kind of devastation that we're that that you know probably most of us have no not few of us that are still alive can remember, you know. So so we're looking at a cataclysm if that if that if that is if that is the method to convince us that we need CBDC. And my my great fear is that it may well be um and if that turns out to be the case obviously that's bad enough but as you quite rightly said cbdc as programmable money which is what it is which you know i'm, I'm sure most people may be familiar with that uh, famous clip of augustine carston saying you know we don't know where a hundred dollars is but with cbdc we've got the technology that we need to control everything they're not joking. They're not joking. They are absolutely serious about that. They're, they're, it's not a, you know, it's not wishful thinking on their part. The technology is fairly simple to implement. So, so they could potentially. I mean, not individually, obviously. I mean, I would envisage that these things would probably be run by some sort of AI system that would, you know, there'd be algorithms checking on your, your, you know, whether you're a suitable person to buy that that piece of media or whether you're a suitable person to buy that piece of food or, you know, so we're talking, we're talking about total technological slavery of the human species. If CBDC is adopt widely adopted and accepted. And if it becomes the only form of money, which would be, or well, the only form of legal tender, then 
that is the end of human freedom. Our alternative to that would be to develop alternative payment systems, to, to develop alternative systems that, that we use, because what is money at the end of the day? It's just a system of exchange that you and I agree on. You and I can agree to exchange anything. Could be lemons, could be tins of tuna. You know, we we can it's it's you and I that agree what the value of it is. So we don't necessarily need, well, we certainly don't need their system of exchange. We can develop other systems of exchange. Now, like you, I am suspicious of Bitcoin, certainly, and um, you know, certainly um um Oh, what's the uh, Ethereum, I think, you know, and, and some of the bigger coins, I think, yeah, they're, they're, there's, there's reason to be doubtful about why we have been encouraged so much to use them. However, I don't think we should lose sight of what the technology means. So it's the blockchain technology underpinning it that is truly egalitarian. And nobody owns that. You know, anyone can set up a blockchain network and that would enable us to, for example, you and I to trade and barter without the need of a middleman. So I think we should be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater while we can be suspicious of Bitcoin and, and other, I think, particularly stable coins. I think that, you know, things that are tied to commodities and we're really starting to get into the same control mechanisms that we're already living under, you know. So, so um, yeah, so I, I think we, while we could be suspicious of those things, I think we should also look to value the potential for the fundamental technology underlying it, which which anyone can use. It doesn't have to be the banks. We can use it too. Yeah, and, and as you uh, mentioned, I think this is the next, uh, you know, this is the next inning uh, in the in the game. This is what's coming next, and maybe to add because I'm always trying to extrapolate based on what 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 we know and what we're talking about. What's next? And I think the next thing on the horizon is what you just mentioned: this uh, economic collapse sort of situation. I don't know; no one knows what it's going to look like. They've talked about cyber pandemics. I just can envision where banks shut down. Maybe they say there was some hack and then basically, I mean, the biggest fear is our accounts are wiped out. We, we go to zero and then they um, tell us, oh, well, you know, we're going to look what happened. Here's our solution, this biometric CBDC type system where you use your digital passports and and, and, and all of this. Uh, so I'm sort of fearing this is on uh, the horizon and maybe it'll be coupled with new lockdowns. I feel like they're preparing us for new new lockdowns. Biden um was the Biden administration was supposed to like a week ago announce whether they were going to extend the state of emergency or not. They haven't, which sort of signals, it seems like they're going to extend the COVID state of emergency in the U S they just bought up. They're about to buy 600 million doses of new vaccines for the fall. Germany is updating their biosecurity act. So, uh, Germans are going to have to wear masks from October to April and use these color coded uh, Chinese style social credit apps. So at mass masks are coming back in many places. So it really seems like we're not done with the lockdowns and they're going to, they're building out this infrastructure. They're not going to stop now. Uh, they might switch it to climate lockdown. Robin Monotti and Telegram today was saying that, you know, there might be a nuclear event in Ukraine and the WHO might declare, uh, uh, you know, because of the nuclear events, uh, you know, a, a nuclear lockdown. And so what are your thoughts on if you extrapolate, uh, regarding new lockdowns or you know how, what what the road ahead might look like 
Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing that I was, uh, you know, not just me, but a number of other people as well that were trying to argue almost from the beginning of the, what we might call the pseudo-pandemic is that this is not the end. This, 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 this is the start, that the COVID-19 is the start of, I would suggest, what is looking increasingly like the, the final push for global governance. You know, global global governance has always been the objective. I mean, you mean we can go back hundreds of years to to for the the ambitions of of you know people that were ambitious of empire, and it's the same old game as ever. It's it's the it's the ultimate extension of the game of empire, isn't it? I mean, the centralized global empire is is the end. You know, is is the ultimate goal, and I think that has been pursued for many years realistically you know it was neither logistically nor technologically feasible you know up until maybe the 1970s or the 80s but then from that point onwards it started becoming more and more i mean i think we can perhaps look to um Bizzinski's technotronic era um you know between two ages where he was suggesting and i think you know a lot of people heard what he had to say um that that moment was coming that you know technology technology would enable the kind of community particularly communication technology and computing technology would enable a control a global control grid and that's what that's what we're seeing roll out now that that is that is what's happening and you know i know with regard to the the division between you know the the so-called different models the unipolar world order and the multipolar world order well of course divisions always used isn't it division divide and conquer is is another age old tactic well we're you know supporting one side or the other you know meanwhile the people that are you know running the game are stashing all the money away in the back room and that's that's what's happening you know it's it's um you know we're not we're not in a situation really where there is any notable resistance to the idea of moving towards this technotronic global system uh well i can't see any there isn't any sort of country that is that is resisting that you know just despite the what people say about for example you know Putin standing up to, um, you know, um, the the WEF, the WEF-ish, if you want to put it that way, uh, Great Reset Agenda in by, you know, through a war, which I think is unusual, you know, through, through a military conflict where people are being killed, obviously, um, that this is somehow defeating the, the WEF-ish model. It seems to me that it's absolutely perfect it's it's facilitating the further um acceleration of of that model in the west certainly and in the east um it's enabling the creation of the of a, of an of you know something else that the that the that our would-be overlords have spoken about for many years this transition to a new global economic engine of the world which will be, you know, the BRICS and China and Russia. I mean, that's that seems to be part of 
the 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 great reset or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I I think we get hung up about things like great reset term itself because obviously the WEF written so copiously about what they what they want it to deliver. But as I said, I mean, I think the the, the WEF themselves are PR team for the for the want of a better expression, new world order. So you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I just use that term because it's it's easier. I, I agree with you. The the, the real yeah. powers are behind uh, the scenes. Um, most of we don't even know uh, the the real names. And uh, I've had guests on from the left and right. I've like this. Uh, I've had socialist professor William Robinson talking about uh, you know, how this glo- global capitalism is is failing, and that uh, all states, even Russia and China. Uh, it's basically all states versus their own populations, including the Russians uh, and the Chinese, where they're trying to establish these uh, fourth industrial revolution technologies to uh, p- prevent a revolution from uh, below populist, uh, uh, as we're seeing now, social unrest. So we've got, you know, people like William Robinson from the left who can see that and, and especially, you know, conservatives uh, as well. And so, yeah, it's basically all, um, you know, ruling oligarchies in every country versus their own population i I don't really see i I totally agree with you i don't really see i I see what the the war in ukraine is just accelerating uh, the great reset uh uh, agenda are are there any um you know anything else apart from what we've covered is there anything else that you know really perturbs you that's front and center uh, on your mind uh, apart from you know ukraine uh cbdc's uh, is there anything else that you're you're sort of uh looking at that you think is important uh, for people to to be aware of uh yeah i mean i'm starting to write recently about potential solutions because i think um it, it can seem when you looking at this kind of information and i'm sure you you perhaps experienced it yourself that it's overwhelming you just kind of think you know what how can anyone stop this it seems to be like an like a um you know, the an inevitable onslaught of an approaching juggernaut. You know, I mean, it's just there's there's it seems that way. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. I think the reason that we are deluged with so much propaganda is that it is absolutely vital for the success of their plan that we we go along with it. It, it, it can't work unless we go along with it. Hence, we have to be convinced by any means, fair or foul, to go along with it. So it's clearly very important to them to that we, I mean, the the level of propaganda during COVID, I mean, I I thought, you know, I I thought I'd never see anything like that again until, you know, the first couple of months of the conflict in Ukraine, which just stepped it up another level. You know, so, so... I think we can take encouragement from that. What we think and what we do really matters. So, therefore, I think we hold the solution to the problem. Um, And I think that's going to come through us taking increasing responsibility for for, for the way that we conduct ourselves in our daily lives. I think that's going to mean that People are going to have to face up to something that most people don't want to do, which is which is a living a harder life, which is less convenient and less, you know, is more challenging, not less challenging. 
but if people if people are willing to do that, if people are willing to to accept that challenge because because it's moving them towards something which is important, and I think what we're talking about here is the survival of humanity, and I personally value humanity. So I, you know, that that is something that I think is important, and I hope that there are other people that do as well enough to the extent that they're willing to do something about it now do, but but i i'm not overly convinced that we can do that what we need to do about it is go on protest march wave flags and and you know get involved in confrontations with people i don't i don't think that is necessary i think that the way that we can really do something about it is by just changing the beha- our behaviour. The whole the whole point of of, of for example, the, the biosecurity state controls that are coming in is to control our behaviour. So it is through exercising behavioural choice that we can challenge it. So, for example, just really small things. If you go to a store, for example, and they refuse to accept cash, then then don't just leave. Tell them why you're leaving. Saying, you know, you know, I've been shopping at this store for five years or whatever, but I'm afraid I won't be able to shop here anymore if you won't accept cash. You know, we it's things like that, just little things. And you know, um, where we buy our food, how we pay our energy bills, all, all this, all this kind of stuff. If we make these changes, then collectively. We have control. There's, I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. It's us. It's the, it's the seven billion of us. We're in control. We just don't know it. Yeah, and this has been a recurring theme on the on the podcast when I ask guests, you know, what do we do? Because uh, I focus as you do on solutions, but also bracing for impact as we sort of move in, uh, because we still don't know how bad things might. Uh, get and uh, yeah as you say you know my 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 wife she's got a one of the apple iphone i'm like you're done we're gonna stop using that i'm gonna get a a, a, i'm going to de-google an android phone for you because that's like the best option in terms of smartphones if you're going to use is having a de-googled android phone which uh, you can use like lineage which doesn't talk with uh, a google or using cash as you said building parallel structures uh you know not buying on amazon or or going to big box um stores and um you know that that sort of thing um and in terms of bracing for impact uh, i guess if you've got any other it seems one of the most common themes is people fleeing leaving the urban areas going to more rural areas getting some piece of land where you have at least water uh ability to grow food have some animals uh, for meat so you don't have to eat bug uh burgers uh and you know, any other thoughts on sort of writing things out? Because uh, you know, some of us are already experiencing the social credit system. I've been, uh, mm-hmm. I've been, uh, I don't have access anymore to Patreon uh, or PayPal. Others don't have access to air travel that are on no fly lists. Uh, some have had their bank accounts turned off, and and so on and so forth. And uh, you know, a- any further thoughts on you know bracing for impact? Uh, prepping or even you know better or worse uh, geographies if you've ever thought about that yeah i mean the yeah well i mean what concerns me about that i think is and it's and it 
I'm not I'm not saying that that's a bad idea. I think it's a good idea. I mean, if you've got the got the ability to find, um, you know, a bit of land somewhere or maybe form some sort of collective that enables you to sign and prepare for a more sustainable and a more um, self-sufficient um, life, which I think is where we what we need to be. We more need we need to be more self-sufficient, more self-reliant. Um, great. That's that's really good. But a lot of people, you know, and I think the situation, for example, in the UK is quite dif- different. We're quite a, a, a crowded little island. Um, land is extremely expensive and is owned by, uh, you know, some big landowners who, who and, or, and other people that, you know, own parcels of land uh, that they protect land is very fenced off in the in the uk we've got lots of laws and lots of legislation about what you can or cannot do in dwellings and what dwellings you can live in and so forth so it's it's difficult a lot more people live in urban areas built up urban areas where perhaps they don't have the opportunity to grow their own food people live in flats i live in a flat i haven't got a garden so um you know, it makes things difficult for a lot of people in terms of that kind of subsistence lifestyle. However, I think that is the way forward to increase our our independence as much as possible. But I think the key to it is going to be us talking to each other face to face. It's not going to be done online through, you know, with the greatest of respect through a Zoom call or through a with a you know, on Twitter or something like that, we are going to have to do this by, God forbid, going out and talking to our neighbours and, and you know, and forming those kind of relationships so that we can defend ourselves and our families in our little parts of the world. And if that, and if that, if that leads to, you know, a greater kind of coming together of people who might, you know, for example, start kind of collectives and things like that where they can, perhaps afford to buy some land and so forth. Great. I mean, that'd be fantastic. But I think the first thing we need to do, which is something we don't do as as much as we should, is just start talking to each other in the street. Just talk, just don't walk around like that with your head down, not daring to look anyone in the eye. You know, we need to say, hello, how are you? Good morning. You know, have you, are you start those conversations, start reaching out to people, because ultimately it's we are going to be the each other's defense. So, you know, we need to start coming together. Yeah, I think that's the best uh, way forward. One of the best solutions, networking, uh, having community. Many guests also have said you need to have a network. Uh, you can't do anything by yourself. And I've been seeing that on the ground uh, in Mexico or here where I am in uh croatia finding like-minded folks uh, i've even been meeting some of my listeners <laughs> from across uh the world and so yeah we need to start talking and educating some of our neighbors and, and i think you know two years ago probably some of my neighbors in mexico thought oh i'm, not, I'm the crazy guy who's who says you know COVID 1984 is a pseudo pandemic as you say and i think two years later they're like yeah i can kind of see now what <laughs> he was talking about and maybe they're not as uh as put off anymore by uh me so we all have to be doing that sort of thing and um you know any final thought then uh to leave us with um 
Yeah, I mean, I would, I would just say, you know, just just do everything that you can to inform yourself, you know, do everything that you can to, as you said, prepare yourself and just think about the choices that you make every day. So, you know, don't just go to order something off Amazon or it might be it might be harder and it might be it might be inconvenient to walk to the local hardware sh- store to get the same thing and it might cost you a little bit more but it's worth it because it's the those are the things that are going to make a difference ultimately if we vote with our wallets if we vote with our wallets that will have by far the biggest impact upon our our would-be controllers, I I believe. Yeah, at this juncture, I also see that as the number one thing for uh, at least prolonging freedom for as long uh, as as is uh, possible. And uh, I think you just changed your website name. I think before, if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, in uh, in this together, but now it's just iandavis.com if you want to tell us uh, again about the best places to find you online and your projects uh, and so on. Yeah, um, yeah, it's iandavis.com. It's Ian spelled with two I, so it's I-A-I-N davis.com. Um, I, I write there predominantly. That's where I write. Um, I also, uh, my work is often syndicated by Off Guardian. I'm very fortunate that um, I, I work uh, occasionally for uh, UK Column, UK Column puts out a new show three times a week. Um, I heartily recommend people check them out. It's really good stuff that they're doing. They're doing a fantastic job. Um, uh, I also, you know, occasionally write for Unlimited Hang- Hangout um, for Whitney Webb, on Whitney Webb's site with Whitney Webb. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, at the moment, like you, I am unable to use anything like PayPal or Patreon or anything like that. Um, And now I'm finding it increasingly difficult to use any kind of email provider. So I'm, I'm banned from Aweber and all those kind of people. Um, And I'm, so at the moment, unfortunately, I normally give my book away for free in exchange for people that that subscribe to my emailing list. Um, Unfortunately, I can't do that at the moment because I've got a technical problem, which I'm trying to sort out at the moment. Hopefully it won't be too long. But normally everything that I do, I give away for free. There's no there's no uh, I don't sell anything. The only thing I sell are my books, uh, hard copies of my books, because obviously there's a there's a printing cost to them. But other than that, um, you know, I want to I just want to get the information out there and just want people to share the information. Yeah, I've been noticing as well. The the next, I guess, part of the battle is uh, trouble with the email services. I've been starting to see that uh, as well. Actually, my private email service I use, uh, Startmail, is banned in Russia and Kazakhstan, my former home. Uh, and I think increasingly, the powers that be are siphoning off, uh, you know, throwing our emails into uh, spam, like my geopolitics and empire.com. Uh, email, I think, is increasingly uh, ending up in spams. But uh, in any case, keep up uh, the great work. Be sure everyone to check out uh, iandavis.com. I was trying to sign up to your uh, newsletter, but it kept giving me (laughs) an error. So I'll try again when you fix it uh, in the near future. And uh, uh, thank you again for being on Geopolitics and Empire. 
Oh, thank you very much, Fajr. It's very nice to. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.